Good morning. This is NPR News. I'm Chris Farrell, in for Angela Davis. Now, the concept of a universal basic income or a guaranteed income stream is simple. Everyone, whether they're working or not, gets a certain amount of money each week, month, or year to do with what they want. No strings attached. And this idea, it attracts both conservative and liberal supporters and detractors. Some conservatives want to make a trade, eliminate social programs like Social Security and food stamps, and replace them with a universal basic income. Liberals tend to see the program as an additional tool to combat poverty and create opportunities for individuals and families to advance, particularly among lower-income communities. Skeptics argue, look, this idea is just too expensive to be sustainable. And there's also concern that, you know, some or all Americans receiving a guaranteed income for doing nothing would reduce the incentives to work. Now, here's the thing. There's been an accumulation of data and research from real-world pilot programs that, in the aggregate, should shed light on what these programs may or may not do. So to gain a better understanding of what has been learned in recent years, we're joined by two guest experts. Derek Hamilton is the Henry Cohn Professor of Economics and Urban Policy and the founding director of the Institute for the Study of Race, Stratification, and Political Economy at the New School in New York City. Welcome. Thank you, Chris. Glad to be on your show. Amy Castro is Assistant Professor of Social Policy and Practice and the co-founder and director of the Center for Guaranteed Income Research at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm glad you could join us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. And we want to hear from you. What do you think of the idea of a universal basic income? What would you like to understand better about this controversial policy? Are you one of the families with a newborn in St. Paul participating in its program? Tell us about your experience. The number is 651-227-6000. So, Derek, Amy, just so that everyone's on the same page, and I'll start with you, Amy, how do you define universal basic income or a, a guaranteed income program? Yeah, so universal basic income is exactly what it sounds like. So it's it's universality. That's sort of the, the key behind it, is that it's given to every single resident in a given city, state, county, something to that effect. And it's a basic income, meaning it's enough to cover sort of your bottom threshold of expenses each month or on whatever kind of recurring schedule, you know, exists. Then a guaranteed income is a little bit different because it's not universal, it's targeted. Uh, and that is the same sort of idea as that as a recurring payment each month or each week or biweekly, however that cadence is spread out. So the child tax credit that we have right now um, really mimics a guaranteed income. And Derek, anything to add around that, you know, that basic uh, distinction and definition? No, I, I uh, like that distinction, and I think it's an important one for several factors. Um, one, oh, sorry. No, Chris, go go ahead, please. No, keep going. Uh, I mean, uh, one, I think uh, universal basic income, ironically, could be inequality enhancing. For instance, if you give somebody who's poor a, a basic income, they will almost by definition consume it because they're a subsistence population that needs to take care of their basic needs. If you give a wealthier person uh, a guaranteed income, a good portion can go to subsidize, subsidize their assets and thereby enhancing another dimension of inequality, which might be differences along wealth. And so that, along with some other reasons why I think it's important distinction between guaranteed income and universal basic income and wholeheartedly support guaranteed income. And Derek, why has the idea, I mean, mostly it's been around the debate's been around universal basic income, although the programs have been, as uh, both you and Amy have defined it, have been a guaranteed income. 
But why do you think there's been so much interest in this idea in recent years? I mean, it's been around for for a long time, but it seems in the past decade or so, interest has heated up. I think we are evolving as a society to ways in which we address poverty. I think for a very long time, we've been framed in thinking that poverty is the result of some deficit due to people who are not doing as well, that they're making bad choices, bad decisions. I think we're evolving as a society to the point where we recognize that poverty is rooted in lack of resources, <laughs> that uh, the reason why people are poor is they just don't have enough to make ends meet or to get themselves into situations where they can have economic mobility. So we, we have a growing genre. And, uh, you know, congratulations to Amy for leading a lot of this where we are um, directly offering resources in a way to empower people to deal with their situation. So, Amy, I mean, you were deeply involved in the evaluating the Stockton economic empowerment demonstration um, under former Mayor Michael Tubbs. I want you to describe this program for us. But part of what was found interesting to me was Bloomberg wrote about it. Wall Street Journal wrote about it. The New York Times wrote about it. I mean, there was a lot of interest in this Stockton experiment. Yeah. So, you know, the Stockton experiment, you know, first off was funded entirely through philanthropic dollars. So I think that that's a key distinction to make is that, you know, the philanthropy really had to lead first and actually testing in real life the subject of Dr. King's last book, right, is that it took us a moment sort of as a country to really grapple with this idea of moving from pilot to policy. And if we fast forward to where we're at right now, it's, it's fairly extraordinary. But the basics of the pilot were pretty simple. Um, there were 125 randomly selected families from census tracts at or below median income in Stockton, and they received $500 a month, no strings attached, each month on a prepaid debit card for two years. So the data that we recently released in the spring is pre-pandemic data. So it's the first year of data um, before COVID hit, and we'll be releasing the second year of data in 2022. So one of the things I found fascinating about the evaluation was how the extra money allowed existing social networks to work better. And I thought that was one of the more important lessons that I drew from it. I wonder if you could elaborate on that. Yeah. I mean, one of the ways that, you know, families who are struggling to make ends meet get by is through pooling resources, and that's both material and immaterial. Um, and on the one hand, you know, what we saw with Stockton was that families really leveraged that $500 in really creative ways, such that there was almost a, um, what we would call in the social sciences, a spillover effect, where, you know, securing food in one household would actually spill over into other family members' households where people would ordinarily bar- borrow cash or borrow food at the end of the month. So simply by stabilizing one household, right, you see it stabilize people, you know, throughout family networks. But then the other piece is that it really functioned as a form of paid care work for all the unpaid labor that particularly black and brown women do that hold up the economy uh, and hold up all of our institutions. So it, it on the one hand, that's really exciting, right? Yeah. On the other, it, it really, we don't want to romanticize that because people shouldn't have to pool all their resources just to make ends meet, Right. Uh, and so what we saw was that the money really accelerated that strategy that people have been leveraging for a really long time to build out a greater sense of agency and, and self-determination. And Derek, what did you draw from the Stockton experiment? The power of the Stockton experiment is demonstration. You know, contrary to that popular belief that if you give people resources, it might incentivize them to not work as hard or uh, engage in activities that are detrimental to their own success, the opposite occurred, that by offering them additional resources, 
not only were they able to address some immediate needs, but they were able to get into activities that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to. So, you know, the, the fundamental notion that we need markets to discipline people, I think the opposite. People need to be empowered so that they can actually engage better in transaction and fulfilling whatever it is they need to be successful. Well, elaborate a bit on this. We got a, a note from John in Laconia, and he doesn't agree with the universal um, basic income. He thinks UBI is a joke. Go go to work, get a job. I have no problem with programs to help people get on their feet, but handing out a paycheck is ridiculous. And I think that's a you know a pretty common perspective among people who you know, are wary of this kind of program. Derek? Well, you know, I think the concept is a false distinction that somehow giving people income incentivizes them not to work. I mean, like I said, I think the point of Stockton and a lot of these other demonstrations is the opposite is actually occurring. So not not only is that true, um, but you know what? From a society standpoint, if I ground myself in the values in which I, I'd like our society to exist, I simply don't like to see people poor, period. I, I You know, I have a problem with people being destitute and homeless. Uh, so I guess two major points. One is offering people resources does not disincentivize them to engage in good behaviors. I trust people, believe in people, and believe that they fundamentally want to be productive. And that has been the evidence that we've seen when we've done these demonstrations. And the second thing, poverty in and of itself is a blight. And as a society, we can make a choice so that we don't have to see people homeless in the street. And Amy, I'd like to get your reaction, because I'm sure... Uh, you've dealt with this a lot. And one of the things that came out of the Stockton experiment was the increase in employment, not a decrease in employment. Yeah. I mean, first, I think it's important, you know, before I talk about that data point to really note how much money we're talking about here. You know, $500 a month or even $1,000 a month is not enough to live off of basically anywhere, let alone California. So the notion that people are going to be able to stop working and live on 500 a month, really, that that sounds fairly amazing. And I, I wish someone would show me how to do that. That sounds great. Um, but also, you know, as Dr. Hamilton was pointing out, the data really doesn't bear that out. What we saw in Stockton was that at the beginning of the experiment, those who were in the treatment group and receiving the $500, about 28% of them had full-time employment. Fast forward one year, and that had actually jumped up to 40%. So what we saw was that by giving people a floor um, that they could work from, it allowed them to take risks, set new goals, and really step out and apply for jobs that they knew they were eligible for but literally could not take off of work to try to try and obtain right so if you think about people who are struggling to make ends meet you are counting down to the end of your shift whether or not you can make rent you don't have the time um, nor do you have the luxury of saying I'm just going to not work this weekend because I'm going to instead take the time to apply for jobs and go to a bunch of interviews that may or may not pan out so what we really saw was that that $500 you know people use that to leverage opportunities that they had always been there, but that they couldn't seek out. So let's go to the phone lines. I'd like to go to John in Eden Prairie. John? John, you there? Hey, do you, what's your comment or question? Oh, I guess I'm with the first guy you uh, talked about. I think this is a terrible idea. Uh, it, it, uh, it, Chris, uh, basically, uh, um, people have to work to uh, appreciate what they get. Um, you can't give someone something and and expect them to appreciate it. It uh, eliminates their self-esteem and their self-worth when you give people things without them earning it. 
only way they'll appreciate it is to earn it. And I guess every one of us had to struggle with the, the, the you know, the person that just spoke uh, said you have you can't do this because you have to work. You can't go to a job interview. Every one of us had to have done that in order to succeed. So um, I don't buy the argument that you need this supplemental um, money just so you can go out and get a better job. You just have to have to, uh, life isn't fair. You have to uh, deal with what you have. And uh, I guess my greatest fear is that we're just spending ourselves into this uh, um, unavoidable uh, debt crisis that's coming. I won't I won't get into that. But okay. I think you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Amy, just uh, your reaction to uh, John's comment. Yeah, first, you know, thank you, John, for for your comment. And I I really love the way that he ended that is that he said, you know, what I really fear is the debt crisis. You know, and I think that a lot of the reactions um, around pushback around the idea of guaranteed income or unconditional cash is really rooted in fear. And I don't think that that fear is misplaced, right, is that Americans are living in a moment in history that is just riddled with economic risk. People are working more and making less, and people feel that in their bones. So when they think about, you know, a new idea that's really pushing back on many of these old tropes that we've attached to the safety net and then added shame and blame to it, that fear gets stirred in and that anxiety is real. Uh, and I just sort of, I, I think that we have to own that um, and really acknowledge the fact that Americans are living at a time of extraordinary risk. And that's exactly why we're looking at ideas like unconditional cash, because income volatility, meaning your income is going up and down each month or each week because you can't predict your hours, is really unraveling American households. And on top of that, for black and brown households who've historically experienced tremendous structural inequality where they've been locked out of banking systems that are safe and equitable for generations. Those risks are just magnified. And let's go to, let's go to Grace in Minneapolis. Grace, what's your comment? Well, I actually do believe in um, minimum basic income with some limits on it. Uh, I'm old enough to have grown up during a time when welfare which is welfare. You got money for your kids, and that was it. And I lived in a neighborhood where welfare was very common, and what I saw was the men didn't take responsibility for their children, not all men, obviously, right. because the government would take care of them. And I actually had one of them say straight to me, why should, it? Let, why should I let the government take care of them? So what I think is basic income should not be available until you're 25. So... There's no motivation to have kids for the sake of bringing in income. And most people don't do that, but for those who do bring in kids just so they can have more income, that's not fair to the children. So, okay, well, thank you for calling in, Derek. I mean, there's there's a, a whole lot there, but the, one of the things that uh, fat, that interests me about the, what she's talking about, and it's not so much the details, but putting various rules and restrictions on the money – and who gets the money, where, whether it's a guaranteed income or a universal basic income, isn't the basic idea it's no strings attached? It is. And unfortunately, the examples of welfare in our more immediate past is one that came with a lot of conditions. So money directed to poor people included things like whom you could have in your household, which very well might have led to some of the incentives for us not to have uh, two-parent households. Because having a man in a household very well could risk the recipient of welfare benefits no longer receiving welfare benefits. 
So one of the added benefits of this unconditional cash is that it doesn't come with some of the uh, disincentives associated with family formation or any other attribute that we may see or not be able to foresee in the future. Let's go to Birch and Birch are in Minneapolis, the Whittier neighborhood. Yeah. What's your um, question or comment? So here's my full comment. Hopefully I don't ramble, but um, I have a disability and the economy is just not able to keep up or provide for me um, or many of my peers with disabilities. And so my question about universal basic income or um, the the sort of bottom line um, general income is why wouldn't we spend our energy or the, why wouldn't the economists spend their energy on improving the economy so that it can work for for everybody um yeah. why depend on handouts um and i hate calling them handouts but whatever um and i'm okay. in full wholehearted favor of a universal uh credit for families but we don't want those children growing up observing people with disabilities sleeping in the streets. Okay. Well, thank you very much for calling in, Amy. Yeah, thanks for calling in, Birch. You know, I, I like the way that you put that. You said the econ- we need an economy that, that works for everybody. Why aren't economists focusing on, you know, creating an economy that works for everybody? You know, we sort of... Here's the issue is that, and Derek can actually speak to this better than I can, is that our economy, the economy itself is rigged, um, meaning it is set up historically over time to lock out particularly single women, um, people who are experiencing a disability like yourself, uh, and people of color from, you know, safe and equitable access, not only to markets, but also to employment. And so when when you're starting from behind the, the start line from the rest of your peers, it doesn't matter how strong the economy is, it's going to continue to exacerbate existing inequalities um, where people, you know, sort of, they don't have a leg to stand on and they don't have a way to get started. And so when we look at these new ways of thinking about, you know, approaching poverty or tackling things like income volatility, but with through unconditional cash, what it does is it levels the playing field just enough that it allows people to take access, um, you know, of the other things that are happening within the broader economy. And I don't want know what Dr. Hamilton would like to add to that. Uh, Amy, throw it to you, Dr. Hamilton. Yeah, no, thank you. Uh, and I guess I need to use terms like Dr. Castro. My, my apologies for not addressing <laughs> I don't know. We're calling it. It's, Der- it's Derek and Amy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. No worries. <laughs> well, well, I think Amy is spot on. Here's the point. Uh, a lot of these programs that we're describing are about empowerment, are about a stimulus, are about ensuring that people have the necessary resources so that they can take full advantage of their capabilities. That's the point. I mean, the conception of the ways in which we think we thought our economy has worked and how government can intervene to improve our economy um, has been basically politically framed in a way that as long as we're investing in corporations, they're going to create a dynacism that's going to lift everybody's boats up. But the evidence of the past 50 years or so is such that although our economy has been growing at a fairly stable rate, although not as fast as it's grown in the past, that that trickle down has not occurred, that many Americans are being left behind and that inequality is growing. 
So what we're talking about is an alternative. Rather than government investing strictly in corporations, that we invest in our people, which is our much tre- most treasured asset, which is our people. Investing in people with things like ensuring that they have adequate income, not only to address their, their, their needs, but so that they're empowered to take part in our economy and literally grow our economy. That's the framework. That's, this is where we're, we're evolving to. And I'll say a couple of other things. You know, Americans don't dispute the notion that people need political rights. They need the right to vote. That people need civil rights, the right to organize free speech. But where we need to get as a society where, we're really, where we will be really fulfilling human rights is economic rights. The recognition that without certain attributes like good health, like a home, like income, like a job, that without those things, people really don't have agency and are not empowered. Rather than being able to engage in the market, the market dictates to them that they, they are at the whim of the market. And, and universal basic income, I, and like I said, what we prefer is guaranteed income. Guaranteed income fits within that frame to ensure that people have the basic right to an income so that they can better themselves and also uh, engage in our economy that will benefit us all. So um, we have some callers on the line. Please stay on the line because I want to get to you. But this is probably, yeah, I think this is a good point to uh, take a break for the news. And we'll get an update uh, on today's headlines with uh, Phil Bacardi. If you're just joining us, I'm Chris Farrell in for Angela Davis. Our topic is guaranteed income or universal basic income with a focus on the small experiments that are being run around the country. My guests are Derek Hamilton, professor of economics and urban policy and the founding director of the Institute for the Study of Race, Stratification, and Political Economy at the New School. Amy Castro is assistant professor of social policy and practice and the co-founder and director of the Center for Guaranteed Income Research at the University of Pennsylvania. And let me just give out the number again because we do want to hear from you. Um, Are you skeptical about universal basic income? If so, why? Do you support the idea? What are your reasons? Give us a call, 651-227-6000. And speaking of the phone lines, let's just go right to Kristen in Minneapolis. Kristen? Hi. Thank you so much for taking my call. What is your comment? Sure. So um, I'd like to say two things, if I may. And uh, I'm incredibly excited that you're sharing this discussion with the community. Um, I've been discussing this idea abstractly with friends and families for years um, because as someone who is a college graduate, did really well in high school, always worked really hard, whatever, the interest that I have in pursuing work and giving back to society has left me in a place where I am very often underemployed, Mm -hmm. underpaid, and so I have firsthand experience with that, but nonetheless, what really is troubling to me is to look around and to see that it seems as though as a as a society, we accept the fact that there are millions of people who have to work 50 to 60 hours to barely get by, and they're working, in many cases, for enormous corporations who are essentially, I feel like their wealth, the people who at the top of these companies, their wealth is being subsidized 
by taxpayers because they know, oh, we can underpay our staff. We don't need to pay them a livable wage because they can apply for government assistance and and they'll be dealt with that way. Okay. So I look at it as the, not the money that as taxpayers we're paying in to help people. We're, we're giving the people who could pay them more an excuse not to do so. And right. that doesn't seem that doesn't sit well with me at all. And okay. and the other thing I wanted to say, if I may, well, is just like oh, okay, as quick, a family quick. person, if mm-hmm. I can, generations of children coming up who because they're stuck in the system of parents being overworked and underpaid, and they don't get the opportunity to do extracurricular things and learn a, a skill, learn a talent, do something fun that makes them look forward to the next day and being an adult. Like, if their parents don't have money to, to get those opportunities for them, then where do they, you know, where do they end up? You know, they, yeah. they didn't get to learn how to play baseball be on the dance team, join theater. And so then, I mean, All everybody, right. where does that go? Well, so thank you for calling in. Thank you. No, I'm really glad that you, you offered your, you gave us your perspective. And now I want to go to Zach in St. Paul. Zach? Hi. Thanks for taking my question. Sure. Um, I've always been curious. Uh, I like the idea of universal basic income, um, uh, but I've always been curious on the larger scale. Um, what does universal basic income look on a national scale? Does universal basic income look the same like in California versus universal basic income in East Coast? Is it still like even $500? Or does the changes in the living expenses in different areas actually get adjusted for in a hypothetical sense? Uh, so, Amy, what? how does this... I'm sure there are conversations like this about universal basic income all the time. How is How are issues about like geographic uh, cost of living... Does that feed into this conversation? Sure. You know, and actually with the experiments that we're running right now through Mayors for a Guaranteed Income and then some other ones that we're running here at Penn, we're actually starting to explore some of that and figuring out, you know, $500 goes, you know, a different, you know, a different amount based on where you live. So there's really kind of an absence of data, you know, in this area. One of the issues that we have right now is that there's been tremendous momentum around unconditional cash. We have the child tax credit. Stockton has obviously gotten a lot of press, um, as has St. Paul, right? But we actually don't know a ton yet about how money functions in different localities and really how narrative functions in different localities. So that's one of the things that we're going to be looking at over the next three years is really seeing how should you be tailoring that unconditional cash based on location. So just a, uh, a follow-up question to that, and then I want to go to, to you, Derek. Um, but the the child tax year credit, let's say it gets extended. Um, it, it's a one-year program still, I believe. I don't think it has been extended beyond that, but the proposal is there to get it extended. So let's say it gets extended. Will that shed light on how a universal basic income might work? Absolutely. I mean, one of the biggest issues right now with the child tax credit that concerns me is policy take up. So there are certain groups of people that haven't been able to access it yet, either because of internet access or the fact that, you know, low income households may or may not have filed for their taxes. And when we look at the inequality that we have right now, we can trace it directly back to policy choices that were made in the 1930s around the New Deal. So moving forward, when we're thinking about the child tax credit right now, we want to be careful (laughs) to make certain that we're figuring 
figuring out what those gaps are over the next year so that if it is extended, and I, I think it probably will be beyond this next year, we're not creating new gaps in the social safety net where other people are locked out um, when they should be included. Now let's go to Nicole. And Nicole, you're in St. Cloud, right? Yeah, thanks. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Well, so I'm I'm not an economist, so I might not, you know, understand. I, mean, I don't know wh- where my question is coming from. But in the early 70s, when my parents bought their house, bought the house that I was, you know, first grew up in, they could afford it with my dad's one income. And then in the 70s, you know, uh, second income was introduced into the household. And then the house, the um, housing market, you know, you couldn't buy a house without two incomes. And so my question is, I mean, maybe the universal income isn't enough to affect the whole income, but could it be? Could it could it eventually, if everybody's getting more, then everything just costs more money? So you may not be an economist, but it's a really good economics question. I mean, it's one of the fundamental economic questions that I think most people have about this uh, universal basic income or guaranteed income. Derek, any thoughts? And Nicole and Kristen's questions and comments kind of relate to each other in that, you know, and it also goes back to the distinction between guaranteed income and universal basic income. If you literally gave everybody the same amount throughout the whole economy, that very well may be inflationary, that, that it has a, might have a tendency to just inflate the overall price level. But by having it targeted and directed in certain ways, it becomes less inflationary, but rather putting resources in the hands that the economy might need it most. And then, you know, the other big point is that guaranteed income does more than or can do a lot more than just eliminate poverty. It can lift all Americans towards the middle class. So it can be a a supplement to income in a way to trend us towards the justice uh, element of everybody having enough resources and enough uh, power to be able to to, uh, engage in their, their everyday lives. And then the, the, the other thing that it's tied to is the tax code. You know, we often think of the tax code as simply a device of revenue collection for the government. But the tax code does more than that. The tax code is America's biggest fiscal tool. The tax code can empower people with economic resources. We currently do. Unfortunately, we do it in a way that does not reflect the values of inclusion. When we tax capital gains at a much lower rate than we tax wage income, well, that's a value. That, that's a value where we um, devalue labor in a way that we, we favor capital or income of those at the top. So we can just think about tax reform with things like a child tax credit, where we send people resources directly because we recognize that having a child uh, entails a great deal of resources. And we want government resources to empower families so that not only they can take care their children in better ways to lead to their mobility and economic development, but in ways that allows them the resources to make decisions that best fit their needs so that they can engage in our economy. And let's go to, let's go to Arnie in Adina. Arnie? Well, good morning, Chris, and thanks for having me on. I just wanted to make a few comments because at 77 years old and living in Edina, that's uh, kind of an oxymoron for me to be able to expect that one. I'm small. My family, mother, sister, and I, father had left, in 1952 were evicted from a home in South Minneapolis. Thankfully, the Minneapolis Public Housing Projects, and I think they were probably federal uh, projects, 
uh, Glendale homes. They're still there in southeast Minneapolis, had an opening. So that's where we lived. It enabled my mother to make enough money to pay the $17 a month in rent that we started at. And uh, my sister and I completed school. We, we had nothing in the, in the way of doing that. Um, I was good in school and managed to get a scholarship, a $300 scholarship in 1961 that paid for three quarters of, of uh, tuition at the university. And I had $30 left over for books, as I recall. So fast forward, good working career in some great Minnesota companies, um, you know, Northwestern National Bank, Honeywell, Mayo Clinic, uh, in a non yep. retirement, and now 11 Edina. So it's really it's a stable housing that enabled my mother to work, keep us, uh, you know, in a, in a place where we had a roof over our head. And she eventually, you know, after 11 years, we moved out of the projects, and, and she bought a house. So the system works in that. Stable housing is what uh, you know really facilitates that. Okay, and I think doing that for families is is just a great start. Thank you. Thanks for 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 sharing your story, Amy. Uh, housing and housing has become. It doesn't matter where you live; it's become a major issue. I mean, the 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 expression affordable housing is almost an oxymoron these days. Yeah, I mean, I'm so glad that Arnie called in with this comment. It. it we can't really talk about guaranteed income without talking about the lack of affordable housing, right? And oftentimes, guaranteed income or universal basic income is held up as this panacea that if we just give everybody cash, then magically everyone's going to be able to afford all of their bills, right? And in reality, the cost of housing is one of the major drivers of poverty in the U.S. And it's also one of the major drivers of inequality over time from one generation to the next is that if you cannot secure housing that's affordable and all of your income is going either to the mortgage or to rent, there's nothing left for anything else. You, You can't save. You can't make ends meet. And so, when we think about guaranteed income, it is not a silver bullet. We also need you know, safer banking policies and we need stronger policies around housing so that people can actually afford um, safe, safe housing for them and their family. And it's interesting hearing Arnie describe his experience because we have disinvested in housing in the U.S. over the past 30 years, and what he just described is largely gone. Um, we have cut back on investments in community development and investments in affordable housing, and we're really reaping the consequences of it, and the pandemic has really exposed this. When we think about the number of Americans that are facing eviction, we simply cannot keep up. Let's go to Ray and Hopkins. Ray, what is your question? Um. Thank you very much for taking my call, Chris. It's uh, great to have conversations with Amy and Derek and the people of the Twin Cities. And especially shout out to the person answering the phone and taking down comments. I think you got <laughs> Absolutely. your next right there. <laughs> yeah, I'm, um, I'm going to buy into that one. Yes, echo that my, one. My question is the cost of implementing federal change with or without opposition from other political parties that if you look at the plus minus of changing a national policy, what would it cost to actually implement best practices? Okay. So before I turn to our guests, experts on that question, I want to go to Don, who Don is in Watkins. And Don, you have a question that's related to what Ray just said. Yeah, well, um, I guess I'd, I'd start by saying that I'm absolutely dead set against this whole idea 
I can't even imagine how anybody thinks that this is a good plan. I mean, basically, how do you propose to pay for all of this? And how do you think it's okay for you to take money from one part of society and give it to another part of society by force? I mean, you're taking resources from one family and you're... Your whole idea is to take resources by force from one family and give them to somebody who you think is going to deserve that money more. And I think it's just a way for liberals to buy votes from people who are poor. And it just drives me nuts Okay, that you guys think that this is okay. Okay. So one of the reasons I wanted to, uh, put Ray and, and, uh, I'm sorry, John and Don together is they're raising the political question about how do you pay for it? But they're also bringing very different perspectives toward that question. So I'll start with you, Derek, in terms of this thinking about how do you pay for it? And to answer that, I think we need some historical context. Uh, the ways in which we have taxed Americans has dramatically shifted over time in a way that privileges those with resources relative to those that don't have resources. If we consider the share of income that goes towards paying taxes, we impose taxes on poor people and lower income people and middle middle income people in ways that are dramatically different than the ways in which we impose tax liability on those that have greater resources. So, So let me start with that. Um, we should also add the historical context of the $1.3 trillion tax cut that was passed in the previous administration, where the vast amount of it is going to be distributed in ways that um, are not uh, progressive towards those with a, with a great deal amount of, of resources. So that, that historical context is important um, when we think about the tax code and the ways in which the tax code can be used in a different way to empower people, especially those at the bottom. So there certainly is resources available, um, and the ways in which we distribute those resources can be done in a more just way. Um, Secondly, uh, the notion of deficit at the federal government would probably require a whole radio show. Uh, I'd recommend the the audience take a look at the perspective from Stephanie Kelton and her book, The Deficit Myth, which uh, unveils some of the mythology around the government being like a household. The government has a is is a sovereign monetary entity that has a great deal of resources where they can uh, promote the well-being of Americans in ways that a household can't. And again, it would take a little more nuance. And then going back to Ray's point uh, about the political implementation of this, a lot of the federal proposals for guaranteed income are using Treasury, IRS, and the tax code as a mechanism for implementation. Sadly, when we think about social policy, we often haven't thought about Treasury. We, we often think about uh, health and human services. We think about the Labor Department. But the Treasury is where a vast amount of government resources are placed and where structural reform can take place. So a lot of what Amy and I are talking about is changes in the ways in which government values the resources they distribute in a way that might be more fair, more focused on, again, its greatest resource, which is its people, uh, as a mechanism to grow our economy. 
And Amy, you know, your thoughts about, uh, you know, the politics as has been raised by um, both John and Don. And one of the things that is intriguing is that the mayor of Stockton did not win re-election despite, you know, all the attention that was paid to the development program. Yeah. You know, one of the things that's most exciting to me about the conversation around unconditional cash, and I'm somebody who, you know, I'm a social worker by training and I've been doing this work either as a practitioner or as a researcher for, at this point, 15 years. And it's the first idea, this idea of unconditional cash I've seen that garners support from both the right and the left. So when I think about implementation, you know, it really comes down to, you know, the devil's in the details and how do you get that, you know, that ball over the end line, right? Yeah. And you, you can't do it without getting support from both the right and the left. And so when I look at where we're at in American history, which is arguably a peak division, peak divisiveness, right? Um, We look at unconditional cash was first passed through the Stimulus Stimulus Act underneath Trump. Fast forward, and we have the child tax credit with President Biden, right? And so the fact that you have both the right and the left experimenting with unconditional cash at a moment of political division and at a moment of great inequality and great fear, right? I think it really speaks to the fact that people are ready to have this conversation about the social contract and about the way that we have things like the Treasury and the tax code set up. Um, And I also just wanted to return quickly to that second question that I believe the second caller asked regarding how would you actually pay for this. Right. And I would really encourage the audience to take a look at my colleague, Dr. Ioana Marinescu's work. Um, she's a labor economist and has really put you know, a phenomenal amount of work out there um, in an accessible way such that people can see the different ways that we would actually be able to pay for this. But I think that the leading idea really is taxing data. And what I mean by that is not taxing, you know, people for their data, but rather taxing companies for all the information that they get on us. So we use things like Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Hmm. you know, name your social media, you know, tool. Right. We, when we, you know, are engaging with those tools and with websites, we are leaving cookies all over the internet. We don't pay for those services, but we end up paying for them on the back end because what companies do is they scrape that data and they sell it back to us in the form of ad revenue, right? So I think one of the leading ideas is really taxing companies for that data that they get for us for free, right? Like monetizing our human behavior and then funding something like a negative, or excuse me, a guaranteed income um, with that revenue. That's an intriguing idea. Well, let's go to let's go to Karen from Minneapolis. I'm going to try and get as many of these calls in as I can because there's uh, boy, there's, this this topic has really hit a uh, genuinely hit a nerve. So, Karen, Car- is it Karen yeah. or Corinne? Yeah, Karen, that's fine. Um, oh. Whatever. Um, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, yeah. For first, I, I want to say we we before we talk about um, the basic income. Or to, uh, for everybody, we should start forcing companies to pay a livable wage. You know, my my husband um, had his business had a business before COVID that collapsed, and now he's working as a personal care t- uh, assistant for minimum wage. And um, you know, he's working as hard as anybody uh, I know, and and he makes minimum wage. Um, and, and there so. There are a lot of other um, jobs that pay minimum wage, and at the same time, corporations make, um, you know, record profits. I think we should redistribute the the profits fairly, and not just to CEOs and, um, 
you know, presidents, but also to their workforce. I mean, it was mentioned before um, in the show that over the last 30 years, we had a tremendous increase in productivity, but most of the profits from that went into um, a very small segment of the population and the, and the, uh, the, the general workforce didn't really benefit from it. And, and I had my own business, and I never paid less than a livable wage. And what is, what what is your business? The, well, I have a construction business. Oh, um, okay. And, and um, here in the city, um, you know, for somebody that started fresh with me, I paid $18 um, because they need that money to pay their bills. There's no question, you know. Yeah. And the other thing is that small businesses don't really get a – get a break but the big businesses they get all these big breaks and you know and and at the same time they they squeeze everything out of their workforce that they can um which i don't think is 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 fair you know yeah so uh derek just a lot there i mean th- thank you so much for for calling in with, with with your comments and observations but you know one of the things i think that um at least i'm drawing out of his his question is about is it the minimum wage we're going to focus on is it the uh uh earned income tax credit we should be focusing on is it a guaranteed income i mean it's sort of these, these ideas are competing for attention you know, Amy said it earlier, uh, guaranteed income is not a silver bullet policy. It's a great policy that can do a great deal. But uh, to address all of America's problems around uh, inclusion or any issue we might have, there is no such thing as one single policy that will. It, it hasn't worked for any policy in American history, and it ain't going to work for guaranteed income. So we can walk and chew gum. We can do things to make corporate to, uh encourage corporations to be more socially responsible and we can use government resources in other ways uh, like ensuring people have access to health care like ensuring that we have minimum wages uh, that that uh, work with guaranteed income and you know you mentioned earned income tax credit well earned income tax credit is a mechanism to uh, supplement people's income the earned income tax credit presents a framework that can, we can use to implement guaranteed income. There's no reason we have to uh, have a work requirement for people to get access to earned income tax credit. That's a choice. That's a political choice. Just like poverty in general. With a lot of some bottom lines that we're trying to get at is that poverty is a political choice. Government has the capacity and resources to redress poverty and not only redress poverty, lift more families towards the middle class. You know, it, it should not go unknown that the big story of the day is what's going on in Afghanistan, uh, that the war in Afghanistan. And consider all the resources that were put that was put into that war over the last decade. And of course, I'm empathetic to all the crises that's taken place and, and lives that are affected. But we also spent well over a trillion dollars over the last decade. So government has capacity. It's a question of the ways in which we want to direct our resources in a moral way to empower people while still in growing out growing our economy. So, well, we're getting toward the end of our time. So I want to ask you, um, Derek, when it comes to, you know, these experiments that are going on around the country, I think there are more than 30 are in different urban areas. And then, of course, there's a lot going on overseas. And I see where New Mexico is thinking about possibly doing an experiment. 
as a state, what are you think? What what are you going to be watching for? What is it that you want to draw from these experiments? I think it's time to make them scalable. I think the demonstrations serve their purpose to show uh, what can actually happen when we do these things and to redress some of the myths about it's going to disincentivize people to work. We found the opposite. Now the question is, how do we implement them en masse? And at the end of the day, there is the reality that state and localities do have budget constraints. And those budget constraints are cyclical in that when there's an economic downturn, they become even more binding. So how do we uh, advocate and, be- and build up the political muscle to get this implemented in a scalable way? And I think the child tax credit is a good example of that progress, as well as the ways in which we address the pandemic, that crisis, by sending checks directly to Americans. And it saved us in many ways from some of the, the economic uh, problems we would have had if we didn't send those checks to Americans. And Amy, same question to you. I mean, you're deeply involved in evaluating the Stockton experiment. I mean, what are you looking for? Um, you know, I would just say a second to what Derek just shared is that really thinking about what would it take um, to get to a scalable policy. It's really a question around implementation and, you know, really figuring out, like, who does guaranteed income work for and how? So there's been a lot of momentum, but we there's still a lot we don't know about groups that may be more marginalized. So things like returning citizens, um, you know, low-income women of color, uh, people who are in varying housing markets. There's lots of unanswered questions. And what we're really interested in is saying, how does unconditional cash function alongside the existing safety net and alongside existing policies? Well, thank you very much. Uh, This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you to everyone who called in. I apologize to the callers who are still on the line, but um, thank you for calling in. And this conversation uh, was produced by NPR's Ariana Rosas. You've been listening to a recording of a live radio show on NPR News. You can hear Dan Crocker, Nina Moyni, Chris Farrell, and other guest hosts during a live call-in show at 9 a.m. weekdays throughout the month of August. Looking for Carrie Miller? She's back talking about books and ideas at 11 a.m. every Friday starting September 10th. Thanks for listening.